fine. No, okay. All right, go Karen. Uh, hold on one second. Go for it. <laughs> Welcome everyone to the okay, I think we're good. I think we're good now. Okay, all right, we're seeing you. Uh Department of Peace Building call. Um, to the item number two on our agenda tonight. Okay, all right, we're seeing Paul. To the number two on our agenda tonight. Okay, all right, we're seeing Paul. Okay, I've got feedback coming out from me. Yeah. Maybe that's better now. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, welcome to the call, everyone. Please monitor and keep your, your phone muted until it's time for you to be asking questions later on. Uh, we've got our special guest, Dennis Kucinich, a former congressperson on the call tonight. So we're going to get right to the agenda. Say hello to everybody. Welcome. And uh, if you want to say hello in the chat room and where you're from, you can drop that in there. Uh, a brief introduction, uh, Dennis Kucinich served in Congress from 1997 to 2013. He introduced the first 20th Century Department of Peace bill in 2001 and reintroduced it in every session of Congress through 2011. Uh, a former Cleveland mayor, Ohio State Senator, Cleveland City Council member, presidential candidate, and an Ohio gubernatorial candidate, uh, Kucinich champions peace, workers' rights, environmental sustainability, and other humanitarian causes. He saved the Cleveland Municipal Electric Company from sale and privatization, and he his book was released this last fall, The Division of Light and Power. It's on Amazon now. Um, and he received an F rating from the National Rifle Association, which he emphasized during his 2018 gubernatorial campaign to reinstate a ban on assault weapons. Dennis, glad to have you with us tonight. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. And uh, hello to everyone. And I, um, uh, th this is uh, a very important time for us to, uh, to gather because we have a, uh, a sharp increase in violence going on nationally uh, in our neighborhoods and our cities. Uh, the, uh, just this past week, we're all familiar with the uh, uh, incidents that have happened in many cities where, you know, 10 people and more have been uh, shot in various incidents. And, and abroad, we have the, uh, the war uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, so many people were dying there in that, in that senseless conflict. So when we reflect on this moment, uh, what, what, what does our work to create a cabinet level depart department of peace building mean? It's probably more meaningful than ever because the violence that we see in our society uh, is, is really been the result of an arc of violence that, um, that has existed throughout this nation's history and that has intensified uh, um, through the decisions of our, of our government, uh, starting with, um, you know, most notably Korea, Vietnam and onward. 
the, the wars that we perpetuate abroad inevitably come home one way or another. Uh, there's a desensitization of violence that has occurred. And in a way, you know, there's a structure of violence in our society. And it is at this point uh, uh, licensed mightily with a Pentagon budget that, uh, that is uh, over 800 billion. And you add this central intelligence and uh, so-called Homeland Security budgets. And you're looking at over a trillion dollars a year that uh, goes uh, for things that have to do with uh, uh, either trying to control or perpetuate violence. So our work then is about creating a, a new structure which um, aims at a new direction that we, we, change, we change the way people think. The way they, they the way they speak, the way they act, and that unity of thought, word, and deed, uh, when it is directed towards peace building, towards um, changing the way people look at the world, that's the way we build a new world. But it needs to be institutionalized, just as violence is institutionalized in our society. So must be peace building. And uh, this is why the work that we're doing, which now can look back over 20 years of efforts, uh, why it is so critical today more than ever. Uh, we, we, uh, our efforts were, began before 9-11, let us remember, uh, in, in July of 2001. And uh, they take on an ever urgent meaning when we uh, start to perceive and see the tempo of violence accelerating in our, in our cities, in our nation, and in our world. And it is, it is as though people are not educated in another way. All of the apparatus of state uh, uh, governance, uh, including the State Department itself, is not really about diplomacy as it, as it is about finding ways to perpetuate violence. And so uh, it is our efforts, which uh, at this point are, are you know, are humble, uh, dedicated, persistent effort towards building a new structure, which alone, alone is the only path that will save this nation from destruction, from within and from without. This is not a small matter that we're embarked on and that we're continuing on because um, we're, we're holding that space for an approach towards human, human relations that aims at settling uh, our disputes in a, in, a, in a peaceful way, that aims at, uh, uh, at helping to educate our children uh, in, in ways of, of communicating with each other that 
avoid conflict, that resolve conflict, that creates a consciousness. And that's really what, what the whole movement has been about uh, these last 20 years and the antecedents of, of this idea uh, that stretch back many decades. You know, it's really been about a shift of consciousness. And um, so I'm, I'm very grateful for the work that each and every one of you has done over the last uh, two decades and uh, continues to do and the organizational efforts that you have. It's like wave after wave. And, um, and today um, it has no less and probably much more urgency than ever because the, um, um, that sort of Damocles of nuclear war uh, is swinging lower and lower and the potential for um, widespread destruction has become greater. And so it is, uh, it is not naive to demand peace and to demand <clears throat> that our leaders find ways, peaceful ways of resolving conflict. Uh, because absent that, I, um, matters like Ukraine begin to percolate everywhere. And um, I'm um, very grateful for those of you who have been on that journey for the last 20 years, for those who have joined, um, joined this effort and continue to perpetuate it uh, in, in speaking to members of Congress and appealing to them about that we must create a new way um, to deal with this. Um, you know, John F. Kennedy said it in a very famous speech where he talked about we have, we have to learn to live together as brothers and sisters or perish together as fools. And, and this, there is a reasoned um, uh, intellectual, political, and spiritual um, argument to be made for our efforts. And they are not just legitimatized by the external circumstances where we see the rise in conflict, but also uh, by uh, the necessity to at last create a formal structure so that people are taught, um, are taught peace. And, and when we can do that, we, uh, we, we have uh, begun the work of creating the new world. And that's what we're about. And that's what each one of you is about. And I honor that and thank you. So I'd be happy to have a discussion uh, right now. And uh, thank you for the opportunity that you've given me to uh, work with you, to be a spokesperson, to be uh, an, an agent for change inside the government. And um, I'm, I remain dedicated to this cause and look forward to continuing to work with you and in any way that uh, we can to keep not just this dream alive, but the hope for uh, the future of our, of our world alive. And this is, this is how urgent our work is. So thank you. So let's, uh, let's begin a discussion right now. 
Yeah. And, and thank you, Dennis. I, I just uh, enjoyed so much of what you said. Um, we've got a few people asking questions yet. Why don't we start with David Hazen? Uh, thank you, Karen. Dennis, I met you in Eugene, Oregon, 2004. The ducks love Oregon. And my question to you is how do you uh, bounce back from dark times when, when things look impossible, when people are calling you names and belittling you and, and dismissing you, how do you bounce back? Well, it begins with a worldview, which uh, not a worldview, but a kind of a, a way to live in a world where you're an activist and when you speak out and people will disagree with you and sometimes they'll say things that won't be very nice. And I take this approach. I know what my commitments are and what any, what, whatever anyone thinks about me is none of my business. Whatever anyone thinks about me is none of my business. And I tell you that works, that works as an approach uh, to life. It doesn't mean that you don't listen to what people's concerns are, that you don't, that you aren't inclusive in in uh, your uh, approach to dealing with people, that 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 you do not shut anyone out automatically. You listen to what people have to say, but when they when it starts to get into the gotcha moment where they say, "Well, you're nothing but," or you know, "You're you're wrong," and therefore, you know, you're beneath the grace of God. Eh, you know, that's not your problem. That's their problem. And, uh, and so the other thing is I, that we don't hold on to it. If we really stand for peace, we, we, we have to, in the words of uh, Shelley and Prometheus Unbound, um, uh, forgive woes darker than night. As a daily practice, not easy to do that. And I'm talking about daily living here. Because the response that we have to anybody in our lives, if they're casual, if they're a, um, a coworker, if they're a, an opponent on, a, on an issue, uh, it has to be consistent. And um, it is true that a soft word turneth away wrath. And it's also true that we shouldn't spend time thinking about uh, in a negative way about anybody. And it's possible to do that. You can live that way. You know, the, in, 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 um, um, in, in conservative Judaism, there is a concept known as Lashon Hora. I've got several books uh, behind me that relate to this. And what it really talks about is derogatory speech, not ever using derogatory speech in relationship to anyone. It's not easy to do that. I mean, I worked in what is really the capital of La Shonara, uh, where one's political positions are always put in a very personal term and there's condemnation that goes on all the time. When you start to get away from that, it, it enables one to have a pure expression of what, what you stand for. And then you realize it's not about you. That's the most important thing. You know, we're here to be of service. And if we start thinking, well, you said something about me, I don't like it. And then you start to look at yourself and say, oh, is this who I am? Forget about that. It's about what our commitments are. That's where the value is. And so you step out of ego, don't really care about what anyone says. Listen, you know, listen, but not, don't turn oneself into a pity party of, uh, 
when when somebody uh, wants to judge. Um, and and really, another bit of advice is you know avoid judging people. People need to be loved; they don't need to be judged. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can uh, agree with or tolerate somebody who's doing something that is fundamentally wrong. Just okay, I'm not going along with that. Or at some point, there are in civil society moments when people bring judgment upon themselves. Hey, that happens. But we don't have to do that in our own daily lives and who we in dealing with people. So I like to, for my own life, I like to kind of live light and not be have the attachments that are created by, you know, uh, in, in the words of uh, one of Shakespeare's sonnets, uh, desiring this man's art or that man's scope with what I most enjoy, content at least. You know, just don't, don't be attached. Don't, but also don't ever fear to take a stand and say what you think. I don't know if that answer helps, but it's kind of how I look at things. Great, thank you. Uh, Patrick Michaels, would you like to go next? I would. Hello, Dennis. Hey, Patrick. Long time no here and see. Good to hear you. Thank you. We know that the uh, Department of Peace was originally proposed in the early days of the Constitution. Uh, we're announcing a online referendum to make it a constitutional amendment on Peace Day this year. Thank you. I, I think that all these efforts have uh, validity and that the more that we, each one of us in our own, from our own perspective advances the thinking about peace, get people to think about peace. It's important. And, and thank you for, you, for your own commitment in, in using electronic media as you have to uh, get the word out. So thank you. You're welcome. Keep, keep up the good work. And you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Okay, Jan Grossman. Hi, Dennis. Hello, everyone. Um, I've been curious. I, I came aboard um, maybe in the early 2000s. And originally in your bill, you had a section on the media. And I remember at the time I was looking for world peace and I said, well, what's talking about the media? Um, and I've tried to find the original bill. Um, so I'm wondering, which I believe I have, I haven't reread it again, but I'm wondering if you could address your thoughts on the media and peace. Yeah, uh, well, you know, we, uh, we need to engage the media uh, to realize their responsibility. Um, they're involved in, in constructing our social reality. I mean, there, there's a book by, uh, uh, two social scientists it's written, I think, like 50 years ago, called The Social Construction of Reality. It's by Berger and Luckman. And what they, what they posit is this, that reality is socially constructed and culturally affirmed. And we live in a heavily mediated society where, where the media helps to shape that, that social reality and cultural affirmation. It just happens that way. And, and, um, and when the media, uh, you know, we'll talk first about corporate media, 
uh, not individual social media, when the media uh, is used to create a consensus, you know, what uh, Noam Chomsky calls manufactured consent in some cases, uh, it can create a, uh, a false reality. This is what people are concerned about, fake news. Um, you know, each one of us has to be wise consumers of that information. And, and we have to demand more of the media. I mean, let's face it, when the electronic media was created through the Federal Communications Act of 1934, if you look at that act, it was to, it was to serve, and, and this is a direct quote from the bill, the public interest, uh, convenience and necessity. But the corporatization of the media has dramatically changed the role of the media. And in some cases, uh, you can go back during the period of the Cold War, which we're in again, the media served as a spear carrier for the government, a supernumerary. And they helped to advance a certain point of view that uh, needed to be challenged, but the space wasn't there to challenge it. The space wasn't there in the media. In some ways that exists today again. So we need to engage the media with uh, the idea of what the responsibility is. Uh, the, uh, there is, you know, there's too much power in the hands of a few. At some point, there, there does need to be some uh, government which will apply antitrust to breaking up the monopolies in the media, which I think have become a danger to our society because the lack of diversity of opinion is a, is a threat to uh, our, our hopes for maintaining a, a, um, a, um, a, a, a you know, small d democratic culture. Uh, we, we also have to look at the social media, which uh, now is being used to ban alternative views, which I think is very dangerous because uh, the, the whole idea about democratic interchange is a free interchange of all kinds of ideas. A lot of wacky ideas out there. Let's admit that. But there are some people who might think that our idea is wacky and so therefore it should not be heard from. Cut it off. Uh, and, and so... We, we have to recognize that the media plays an increasingly powerful role in our society, and we have to uh, demand in our efforts to achieve peace uh, some recognition from the media of their responsibility. And, uh, you know, and that, there's, there's very little that's being done today in, 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 in public forums to talk about um, uh, an organized approach to demand media accountability. I mean, there are some writers like Matt Taibbi, uh, uh, like Chris Hedges, um, uh, the work that Ralph Nader's done over the years to try to hold media accountable, but it's very difficult right now. But our work needs to take note of the media's role and our responsibility to communicate with the media about the necessity of having a diversity of opinion expressed in, um, in the public forums. Thank you. Great, great question. Thank you. Sharon Abreu, am I saying that right? It's actually Abreu. It's okay. Portuguese, so it looks French, sounds Spanish, and confuses almost everyone except a few baseball fans. <laughs> Hi. Hello, everyone. Hi, Dennis. It's great to see you. Good to see you. Uh, Thank you. You know, uh, I'm in the Washington state and was able to get a resolution passed a few years ago through the um, Washington State Democrats Central Committee calling for curtailing U.S. military activity in response to the climate crisis. 
Um, I really feel that we have to combine the peace movement and the environmental movement and the labor movement. And I, I just, I can see a, a Department of Peace really being instrumental in bringing those together. Um, just like to hear your, your thoughts on Well, you on know, I that. agree with you 100%, uh, Sharon. It's good to see you. Um, uh, war is ecocide. I mean, you want to talk about all the efforts that are going on in the world for decarbonization are more than offset by the amount of uh, carbon that is put into the um, environment through uh, weapons of war uh, being employed um, everywhere. You know, it's not just in Ukraine, it's everywhere. And so what's, what, what is the United States response? Send more weapons, not send more diplomats, not try to find a way to achieve peace, but send more weapons. And this is, this is the mentality we have right now that we're dealing with. But we, we, need, to, we need to continue to, to uh, insist on the connection between peace and protection of the environment because they are, they are vitally connected. Um, and you're right about enlisting organized labor and that's through, uh, if we're members of unions, supporting people who are, um, who are dedicated in that regard. I mean, when I traveled the country as a presidential candidate and went to you know, all states in 2003, 2004, I met a number of labor leaders who were very involved in, in, in the peace movement. And, and, and of course, you know, another problem is that the, that the labor movement itself has, has been shrinking uh, along with the, the loss of industrial job, but we're seeing some new people coming in in certain, in certain service sectors. We need to reach out to organizations and labor is one such organization and reach out to campuses too, which lately have been devoid of these kinds of discussions. And so we, we have to take it upon ourselves to do that. But Sharon, you're, you're absolutely right about connecting peace and the environment. I mean, just the talk of, of uh, nuclear weapons right now. And you know, the, we, that talk actually there are laws against threatening the use of nuclear weapons. And, uh, and, and we need to, and, and there's a moral code that needs to be uh, insisted upon. But you know, this isn't new talk. I mean, you may or may not remember that during the time that George uh, uh, W. Bush was president, there, right. there was active discussion about using um, uh, nuclear bunker busters against Iran. We're talking about dropping a deep earth penetrator uh, on a, a nuclear um, site at Bashir in Iran. And I spent quite a bit of time in Congress on the floor explaining to people that if you detonate a nuclear weapon anywhere of any kind, the entire earth pays the price. There are no winners. Everyone becomes a loser. But the admitting the thought is something that uh, should not even be entertained. It's like, it's horrific. Yet, yet, we're in a moment right now where 
suddenly it becomes a, uh, uh, a matter of discussion and speculation. And we, we, you know, that, that kind of talk needs to be shut down. Unfortunately, it's not being shut down. And it's, uh, you know, it's being discussed strategically by people in a number of nations. And you know, it should be one of those things which is unthinkable. Uh, but unfortunately, it, it, people are thinking about it. And, you know, if the, if the thought is uh, father to the, uh, to the word and, you know, father to the, uh, to the deed, well, we have a problem here. Okay. Thank you, Dennis. Yeah. Good question. Good discussion. Uh, Kathy Kidd. Yes. Hi, Dennis. Uh, Mary Ann was on last week and said she had just talked to you about Ukraine. So I'd, and that you knew a lot about it. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. One, of all the wars, why do you think this has galvanized our attention so much all everywhere, especially in our country? And um, with all the genocide happening there, what can we do? It, it just feels like there's nothing we can do. We're just watching it. What, what do you see as our options? Well, You know, it's more like a civil war because if you if you stood stood a dozen Ukrainians uh, next to a dozen Russians, people people look the same, they sound the same. Um, I mean, they're brothers and sisters, as we are all. But you know, there's a kinship there. They were all part of one country at one time. Um, our we, we need to demand that our, that our nation uh, play a role in, in bringing about a peaceful settlement. That's what we need to do. And uh, the um, blame casting that goes on can, can travel a great distance, but uh, peace doesn't seem to be traveling uh, much of a distance just yet. And the people of Ukraine, in some ways, seem to be pawns in a geopolitical game that is being played uh, between great powers. And it's just fundamentally wrong. Um, it, it's fundamentally wrong. And whose heart, who has a heart, could not be saddened or torn by the images that we see coming out of Ukraine. It's terrific. Um, and then we, we have to also reflect on, on our, our own nation's direct responsibility for the deaths of uh, perhaps a million Iraqis, which we never saw much about. I mean, when I brought that to the floor of the house, it was like I was considered unpatriotic for raising questions about what about all these Iraqis that are being killed and why? Um, during the war in, in Vietnam, there were millions of people in Southeast Asia who were killed. For some reason that uh, escapes uh, reflection. We need to, we, we, is urgent 
that we demand that our officials use diplomacy to settle this. And there are ways to doing it. It's not like we're in a Gordian knot with an irresolvable conflict. There are issues that can be sorted out. Doesn't mean everybody will be satisfied with the result, but there are security needs of, of, of all countries which need to be addressed and need to be resolved and agreements need to be put together. But this is not what's happening right now. Our, some of our leaders are predicting this war is gonna go on for a while. Why? Why? Uh, what, you know, that is, that is a, to me, it's a confession of ineptitude. If in fact we are the greatest power in the world, why aren't we leading the way to settle that instead of just sending weapons? Why aren't we doing that? So, you know, I, I'm, um, as all of us are, very, very concerned about uh, how far, how long this has gone, the potential for, uh, for escalation, and that it could, uh, it could spiral out of control and engulf the whole world. So, you know, do I have any final answers to this? No. Do I have ideas about how this can be settled? You bet. But nobody in Washington is asking for my opinion at this moment. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Um, let's go to David Wick, and then Deanne has a question or two from Facebook Live that she wants to bring forth. And we'll, we've got other people lined up, and we'll try to get to everybody. David? Uh, hello, Dennis. It's been uh, many years, and greetings to Elizabeth also. And um, uh, I, I am in a role with, I am serving as a president of the Rotary in the Rotary, you know, Inter Rotary International, Rotary E-Club of World Peace. Great. And um, really, you know, shining the light on and doing many things around peace building and that evolution. And, and Rotary is this you know, huge entity in the, in the world, is in some forms of evolution itself. What message would you want Rotary, Rotary International to know um, that you'd like to see it contribute to greater peace building um, with its influence in the world? Well, first of all, uh, Rotary is a tremendous organization. It's been around for yeah. a long, long time. One of the first presentations that I made as a public official was, was, was to a, a Rotary Club where I spoke against the uh, uh, the National Guard uh, shooting of uh, students at Kent State University, and uh, you know the and that that speech was the the day that incident occurred, you know, on May the fourth, many years ago. Uh, Rotaries as, as a service organization uh, can be very influential. Uh, they can do it in supporting, because rotaries are, are, are based locally, they can help, they can be a powerful vehicle for discussing what might be able to be done at a local level to address conflicts that may exist and create fora to, to do that, to bring people in and, and ask people to start to state what they can and will do. I mean, you know, the Rotary brings together uh, 
many interesting people in, in business and commerce and people who are community activists. And uh, you, you raise a very important point about what we can do to reach out to existing groups who can have an impact. And Rotary, Rotary goes to people who are more established in the community as well. And I think that their voices, when they become engaged in what's happening in a community and, and become a place where people can go to about things that are, are really relevant uh, to, to a neighborhood and to, to a, a town or a city, what more could you have? Uh, so thank you for reaching back to Rotary to get them involved in some of these discussions. But I would say every community is looking at challenges right now. And if Rotary could start there, you can you know, kind of build out to wider discussions uh, beyond uh, the city. Great, thank you, Dennis. Okay, Deanne. Hey, Dennis. Uh, so we have uh, 19 people watching from Facebook Live right now. Cool. And uh, we've had some questions come into the thread. So the first one that came in is from Matthew Martin. And he says, hey, Dennis, why are the majority of Democratic politicians so resistant to military reductions and not supporting a peace department? Well, you know, let me just tell you how, how it is in Congress. Um, there's a number of things that are going on with members. It's interesting how uh, uh, defense contractors are spread out in 435 congressional districts. And when, a and when the Pentagon budget is up, uh, you hear from anybody who holds any kind of a contract, they basically are, are told, you better go to Washington and talk to your member of Congress. And, uh, and, and that, in that way, members of Congress uh, talk to their constituents who say, look, I want you to vote for this. You know, we might be getting a few million. Uh, the whole system gets, you know, 800 billion, but we want you to vote for this. And that, that, that does have, have some pull. Uh, now, it should not be contradictory for someone to vote for a defense budget and at the same time support a cabinet level Department of Peace. But when we see the unwillingness to do that, uh, that is a very bad sign. And the, uh, the democratic, you know, political parties are, uh, are uh, mostly composed of people who uh, are, are responsive to the herd instinct and they look for following the leader. And if the leadership is going for a defense budget whole hog, they're gonna go along with it. Now I can tell you, except for inadvertently voting uh, for a defense budget in the first few months of Congress, uh, in the other 15 and a half years, I voted against every single one of those budgets. Why? Because they were just about perpetuating war. And not only that, but I found out in, in my first year in a congressional hearing, uh, where they were reviewing uh, the Pentagon budget that the Pentagon had over one trillion, T for trillion dollars in accounts that could not be reconciled. Trillion dollars. Now that was in 1997. Today it's probably 
anywhere between five and seven trillion dollars. Why? Well, they have over 1,100 different accounting systems. Oh yeah, and they have it that way, so no one knows how the hell the money's spent. It's it's a really bad system, and what it does, it keeps the level of violence going on. So I think the first thing you need to do is to talk to members and say, look, you know, you're voting for these budgets, and no one can can accuse you of being weak need when it comes to America. But you know, America needs something else too. It needs a channel for peace so we don't have to spend as much. Of course, we understand, you know, there was a meeting in the past week or so of the eight biggest defense contractors and they're, they're you know, feasting on this uh, uh, war that's going on right now. And they're offloading all this material that is not going to be used into Ukraine. It won't be used there. It'll end up on a black market so that they can have the defense budget built up even higher. This is a crisis in our society. Eisenhower was right. We all know what he said, you know, about beware of the military industrial complex. Well, it, 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 it's colonized the minds of members of Congress. And what we have to do is to tell people there's no conflict between you know, voting for the defense budget and having a department of peace. I mean, you know, mutually contradictory premises exist simultaneously here. Well, do I believe that we should have the, the Pentagon budget we have right now? No. Have I voted for them? No, but that's me. The ones who have voted for, we should, we have to concentrate on them and say, look, you know, we don't want to have the lifeblood of our, of our country sacrificed in wars. We've got to find a way to limit the violence. And we also focus domestically as well, because the violence right now domestically is skyrocketing. And unless we have a structure that, that children can can learn at the earliest age, peacegiving, peacemaking, mutuality, looking at the other person as an aspect of oneself, unless we can really get into that, all the children are learning is violence. And uh, I mean, that's, that's, there's nothing to displace that. And so this is an educational thing as well. So, you know, we're gonna be dealing with people who are afraid to have their name attached to it, but they have to be, we have to, have to come up with a strategy which shows the practicality of it, because peace is practical, war is impractical, but we have a mindset that we're dealing with here and a consciousness in the country. And America has, uh, uh, in some ways has become less ready to accept peace as a, um, as a possibility or a direction for the country. It's, it's really quite dangerous. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're rattling sabers around the world right now. Why? God knows, but you know, there's, it's very dangerous. And that's why our work is important in reaching out to people and in navigating the contradictions. And being ready to talk to someone who might be a hawk to say, look, you know, you, you know, okay, I'm not asking you to become a dove. I'm asking you to, uh, to say that 
we need to look at ways of resolving things so we don't go to war and waste and cause the lives of our young men and women to be sacrificed because we didn't have a better way. Hmm. Great way to encapsulate it. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, okay, Dan, did you have another question from Facebook that you wanted to ask, or should we go I back? Did. To uh, I did. Just one more quick. This is from uh, Rebecca Wolf, uh, and she says it disturbs me that the U.S. has not, and evidently will not, join the International Criminal Court. Dennis, what are your thoughts about accountability for war crimes? Well. The U.S. has a reason why, because they didn't want our officials or our soldiers, for that reason, to be held accountable. Um, now, the way that anybody is accountable is if they agree to be held accountable, if they're a signatory, if they agree to help be held accountable, or if the, if the Security Council makes a recommendation uh, to, the, um, to the Hague uh, and that it gets the vote of the members of the Security Council. That's the only way anybody gets prosecuted for war crimes. Um, it's almost that war crimes are an oxymoron. War is a crime. And the, the emphasis on, well, this person committed a war crime and that person committed a war crime the way the system is set up, very few people are ever held accountable. And, uh, you know, only, only some people from the smaller nations who, who don't have friends in the bigger nations, they get held accountable for war crimes. But, you know, um, uh, the U.S. is not a signatory. Russia is not a signatory. Uh, I don't believe China is a signatory. So you're, you're looking at some of the great powers, they don't want to hear about it. Now, when I was running for president in 2004, uh, which was a very long campaign, it started in 2003 and, and the end of January and went right through the convention in 2004, I pointed out over and over and over that the United States should join the International Criminal Court. It's called the Rome Statute, that we needed to uh, 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 to join the Biological Weapons Convention, the Chemical Weapons Convention, uh, the Small Arms Treaty, the Landmine Treaty. We, we essentially have stood apart from international law at, while, while insisting on a rules-based approach that we set the rules. <laughs> so there, there really isn't accountability in our own country. Um, and, and that and that ought to concern all of us, because if if we are going to be ever a moral force in the world, which we are not at the moment, uh, we have to be ready to abide by the laws that we want to insist that others abide by, and others should be accountable to. And if we're not accountable, we have nothing to say about others who who are um, very little to say about others who. Uh, will commit actions that are um, that are beyond the pale of human decency, and there's a lot of that going on right now, unfortunately. And why shouldn't the focus be on 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 ending a war instead of creating a checklist about who should be a war criminal? 
That's that's what I have a problem with. Why isn't the focus on any war? Why are we predicting this war is going to keep going on and on and on? And we keep getting more and more arms. You know, I. I yeah. Next question. OK, thanks. Nancy Merritt. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Nancy. Thank you for being on. You bet. Um, a couple of I, things. I, I don't know if Deborah Puss was able to get on, um, but she said to say hello to you. Thank you. Give her my regards. I will. And uh, secondly, what would your recommendations be about getting more uh, co-sponsors on the bill? How do we do that? What do we say? It's, it's well, not you know, that we haven't right. been trying. <laughs> okay. I would say get ready to start with the new Congress. That's what I would say. Now, what's that new Congress going to look like? There's going to be a lot fewer Democrats. Uh, the Republicans are, are almost certain to take the Congress. They only need five, six vote seats beyond what they have right now to pick it up. Uh, but I don't think that we should ignore uh, reaching out to Republicans. So you go back to the Democrats and get reelected. But don't if you if you do it now, I'm just telling I'm just recommending. If you if you try to get people to do it now, they're going to they're going to the ones that are in a race are going to back off because they 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 don't want to have somebody twisted. But, you know, this is something that you have to I would recommend you come up with the strategy, see who gets reelected, start to work on those people who were previous co-sponsors, get them to come up again. Uh, and and then look at the new ones, both Democrat and Republican, and try again. Do you have any recommendation about getting actually getting through to them now that now that it's harder for us to go on the hill? You know, I'll, I'll tell you, I was I was on the hill um, uh, two weeks ago, mm -hmm. and there's still offices that aren't functioning. Yeah. I think you got to. I think the. I think the effort has to be uh, find out if district offices are are open, and don't worry about DC because DC is. It is so strange. Yeah. The, the halls are like catacombs. You, you don't see people, and I think they're still doing proxy voting, and uh, it's very difficult to see people. And for people who don't want to be seen, it's a perfect environment. So uh, I would look at district offices, find out who the district director is, set up an appointment, uh, and, and, you know, because that's where, that's where it's at right now. Mm -hmm. And I think most district offices should be open now. Most should be. But Washington, who knows? I mean, I, you know, I, it, it is amazing how quiet the place is. It's really sad because that's, that was one place when you go there, you could feel like you were actually connected with our government. You know, maybe that'll change in the next year. We'll see. But I will tell you, as someone who's, who served there for 16 years, the real power of being in Congress is being on the floor where you talk to people. That's the real value of being a member of Congress. Yeah. Because you have the ability to be on the floor and you have the ability to discuss things that you care about with other people. Mm -hmm. Um. And and with that, with with when that has been shattered during this period of pandemic, 
it, it's very tough to be able to get consensus, which means the leaders have much more power. So you have to watch who's likely to be a leader. And if you have a block of votes, you might be the influence. That's when they, they push the prospective leader to take a position on this and in favor. That's, I mean, it's the kind of strategy you need to start thinking about now so that once the elections happen, know who you're going to go after again and, and you know, watch some of the races on the Republican side and see if there's anybody there who would be willing to uh, support it. And it's just, you know, you'd, sometimes you'd be surprised at who might join your efforts. You know, thanks to uh, Laurie Rousseau, who's on our call, we just got um, uh, Jamie Raskin back on the bill. So we're I'm very happy with that. That's very important. Yeah. Good. Nice work. Yeah. I, I, I know we're getting close to the hour and I, you know, I'd be happy to take one more question before we wrap it up. Okay, uh, Barb or Barbie, you've been waiting the longest. Barb? It's Barb. My name is Barb Chambliss and I'm in Colorado and we've never met, but you've been one of my heroes since I went to college in the 60s. And I wanted to talk, to respond a little bit to your request about what we need is education about peace and what it is. And, and also your concept of the media and its, its place in this whole thing. So I've been spending 30 years interviewing women all over the world for, the, for doing peacemaking work. They start out as individuals and they do these phenomenal acts of peacemaking. And I, the book has 15 stories in it. The last chapter of the book asks the reader if they would do an act of peacemaking and send it in to me. And it's been patently unsuccessful, I would say. So I decided in COVID, COVID's the worst time to try and put a book out anyway. So I thought, well, I will go after audiences that, and then give them some incentive to do an act of peacemaking. And I've started with teaching high school kids. And, you know, God willing, and the creek don't rise by the end, by June 1st, we'll have, and, and I've said to these kids, I know school's been awkward for you, but I want to let you know that if you read the book, do the reflections, and then you have to do an act of peacemaking, we'll get you a certificate from the National Peace Academy, mm -hmm. thanks to Dot Maver and Lisa Worth Huber. And so I'm hoping that by June 1st, we'll have 28 conscious peacemakers with certificates. But the thing I wanted to talk to you about is one of the things that surprised me, you know, I'm sort of a Luddite when it comes to social media and things like that. But in the middle of teaching all this, here comes the Ukrainian situation. So I say to the kids, uh, are you guys getting any information about Ukraine? And they go like, mm -hmm, yeah, we are. And I say, well, how do you feel about it? And they go like, oh, it's really bad. And I say, how bad do you think it is? And they go like, well, you know, it's bad. And I said, what, where are you getting your information about it? And they all say social media. And I said, okay, so I don't do much social media, but I, am a, I listen every night to about journalized, really good reports from about eight different countries. You share your information with me and I'll share my information with you. But it, but it's a really different, I mean, it's like uh, apples and oranges trying to talk to each other because of the media place that they get. 
I also spent some time working with Bosnian refugee kids right after the end of that war. So I tell my real stories from there. So I think the media, some, and the difference between those two sources of media is I get the pictures, which are the most impactful source of information for me. That's what sends me to bed in tears. The kids get the, if they get a picture, it's a little bitty picture. So I'm really trying to, or, or I want, I would love your input into how do we get, how do we respect their usage of social media, but get them also interested in the big picture. I mean, the real pictures, the, you know, the mothers being created across the courtyard of the maternity hospital. Anything you could well, well, first of all, I, I just want to I, I just want to say that uh, the approach that you're talking about in having uh, young people model uh, peaceful acts, uh, everyone who's on this call and everyone who's a member of the organization uh, dot uh, needs to hear this because it's an approach that can be used to. Um, uh, everywhere. It really, it's very important. Hmm. I mean, this, this, this single approach that you're talking about, if it's uh, able to be uh, duplicate, replicated, huh. a massive impact. It's, thank you. I, I, I'm going to remember that what you just said. It's very important. Um, young people are immersed in social media. They're, they're, you know, it's like <laughs> siloed into social media and they'll follow their own source of information that may not be what we would follow. And it could, it, you know, it could be uh, uh, valid for them and not valid for us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the path to citizenship in a society is a, um, secure, is a circuitous route. Uh, we get all kinds of information. We always have. Today, there's a lot of stuff out there that is just, you know, who knows what, what people are consuming. And all I would say is that with young people, try to model, get them to model uh, the piece rather than trying to convince them that this is the way it is. Because They're doing that. They're yeah, doing, that, and they're that, doing, that they're doing it at a really low level. Like they are listening. 16 of them are having conversations with elders in our community that feel lost. That's fantastic. Feel That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And see that, that, that is a social reality that, that is interactive yeah. and, and that is not virtual, which. And, it, and it's really pleasing. The yeah, kids social love social media results. is virtual. Yeah. You're talking about something that's, that is, is real. real. Mm. And so, uh, but for many people, uh, what is uh, social media is the only reality. So I'd say, um, uh, you know, we we have to provide opportunities for young people to uh, to learn from us. We have to be teachers. We have to look for ways of teaching, and you're doing that. And thank you. And it's Great. a good example that everyone on this call will will learn from. I want to thank uh, all of you who have been on this uh, call uh, for giving me a chance to just share some ideas again. 
Um, I'm of course uh, always going to be available to, um, you know, as you get ready for the for the next year. Um, you know, I just want to be realistic about where we're at right now and not have people spinning wheels, but find out where the district offices are, um, and um, and let's get let's get ready for that for that next Congress. Except for one thing, again, at the district office. I think that this movement that that exists right now, uh, apart from looking for ways to give young people a chance to practice peace, that we need to start communicating, particularly with Democrats at their at their local office, that we that we insist insist that they find a path to settle this matter in Ukraine diplomatically. And that, um, and that it's not just, this isn't all on one country. The US can play a, a formidable role in helping to birth a, a peace agreement. And, um, and, and, if, and if everyone on this call, plus the membership, begins to go back to those local offices and say, hey, you know, we're not satisfied in letting this violence continue. And we have to do what we can do as a country. You know, we, you wanna send arms? Send, how about sending diplomats? How about sending people who are skilled in, in, in resolving this conflict to understand the history of it, how it came to be? And uh, that's what we need to do right now um, so that it doesn't spiral out of control. So I am not advocating that we just sit on our hands until the, the midterms come by. Right now, the most important thing that we can do right now is to call the congressional offices, particularly at a district level, because that's where people are responsive and say, hey, it's not acceptable that we stay on the sidelines. And sooner or later, they'll get, they'll get the word back to the administration. Because you know people pay a hell of a lot more attention to what they hear at the district level than they do uh, necessarily in what happens in Washington, just the way it is. So get to those district offices and demand that our leadership become engaged in an issue, in, a, in an initiative to, to resolve this, this war in, in, uh, between Ukraine and Russia with diplomacy instead of escalating it into a broader war, which it has the potential for, by the way. So let's, you know, and I'm doing my part, believe me, in talking to people about, hey, you, know, you got to find a way to resolve this and quit, quit this, uh, just say, well, you know, we're going to beat our chest and, and resolve this militarily. This will not be resolved militarily in any way, shape or form. It might, it, it might be, the war might be ended, but it's not, the, the larger issues here will not be resolved by war. So thank you. Uh, and thanks for your commitments. Uh, Dot, thanks again for the invitation. And um, love all of you. Thank you. Keep it going. Thank you. Mm. Thank you, Dennis. I just want Bye to remind, okay. remind everybody that, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Great information. Uh, people can uh, listen to the recording on our podcast afterwards. It was just a lot to listen to again, I think. Uh, and just to remind you, if you know how to save the chat down in the uh, lower right hand corner. There are links there for different actions and more information. Um, or you can click on those links now 
and they'll be open in your browser and you can go back to them as the call ends. <coughs> so thank you all. Great call. And uh, um, hope to see you again next month for more calls. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> you want to unmute and say good night? Feel free to do that. Thank you for joining us for our Peace On podcast. You can catch all of our live calls recorded on Peace On, and you can access that link by going to our website and clicking on the Peace On podcast in, up in the upper menu. Thanks for being with us. <laughs>